Um, our gospel lesson today comes from Matthew uh, 5, 21 um, through 26 and 38 through 48. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. And if you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are, danger, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you are on the way to the court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge, who will hand you over to an officer, and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. And you have heard that the law says that the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give it to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. So if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. But if you're kind to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But if you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is the gospel of Christ. Dowie, thank you. Um, as we do each week for this room, for a place that is warm and a place that is safe uh, for us to worship. I um, ask you to send your spirit to be with us. I pray that um, as we look at some, uh, I don't know, some words that you said that for me and maybe plenty of us are particularly stirring or particularly um, convicting. I pray uh, for the courage to listen, the courage to lean forward, the courage to look inside our own lives and our own hearts at the things that are uh, maybe destroying us and the people around us. I pray um, for the wisdom to know what you're saying um, and the courage to do something about it. I thank you that you are ever with us and ever for us, that you um, love us, that like Ty just read, that you send the rain to the just on the unjust, that you are kind to the good and you are kind to the bad. And I pray that you remind us that that sentence is about us, that you are kind to us when we are good and you are kind to us when we are bad, that you send rain in our lives when we are just and that you send rain in our lives when we are unjust. So we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, the little sermon and the prayer there, too. Um, that was just from, to myself. Um, I, uh, we are in week three of a series that we're doing on the Sermon on the Mount, um, a sermon series on the greatest sermon ever preached. Uh, so no pressure. Uh, it's, you know... Great fun to preach the be best sermon ever, and I'm totally comfortable and confident 
in that. It's a little overwhelming and a little intimidating, um, but we're having fun. So uh, just in case you are meeting us for the first time in uh, this sermon series, I do want to just set the scene uh, just a little bit before we dive in. Um, In Matthew chapter 5, we have Jesus on the side of the mountain uh, talking to a crowd of people about what life looks like in the kingdom of God. Um, sometimes when the Sermon on the Mount is taught, it's sort of taught like, uh, like it's kind of like a list of rules given by Jesus, a list of things that we should do in order to um, be part of the kingdom of heaven or to earn the favor of God or earn our place in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And, and what we've done the last couple of weeks and what we'll continue to do is to really push back against that idea uh, because we don't really think that that's what Jesus is doing at all in this sermon. Um, instead, we believe believe that this sermon is not so much a prescription from Jesus on how to get into heaven as it is uh, Jesus' way of describing what kind of life is possible uh, within the kingdom of God, what kind of life is uh, possible for those who follow Jesus. And so um, that's really our take on things and uh, the way that we will think about them and talk about them. And so um, for the next couple of weeks in particular, the verses that we're going to are um, kind of this specific look at the moral ethic of Jesus, of what Jesus thinks about things like um, anger and revenge and sex and marriage and money and all sorts of things. And so um, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a, a, a we're the next few weeks are really um, a close look at the moral ethic of Jesus. And here's the thing about it. Um, the moral ethic of Jesus is, is so brilliant and so fascinating. Like it's such an incredible study, um, even outside of the eyes of faith. It's just, um, it's so brilliant. I keep reminding myself um, as I've been reading this and studying this, that, that this was said 2,000 years ago, and the fact that it still holds up today is, is nothing short of brilliance. And, um, and, and that's been said all over time. Thomas Jefferson calls, um, says the most, it, it is the most sublime and benevolent code of morals to ever exist, um, which I think is something, if you know a lot about Thomas Jefferson, it wasn't that he kept all these, but it was that he could appreciate all of these. A favorite uh, atheist of mine, Kurt Vonnegut, says that he was absolutely enchanted by the moral ethics of Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount, and he, he quoted them constantly if you've read um, Vonnegut. But um, so, so here's the thing, but for the next couple of weeks, as we look at the moral ethics of Jesus, I, I have um, really two expectations of things um, that might happen to us in this section of Matthew 5, or these sections of Matthew 5. Um, and here's the first one. The first one is that I think um, as people who grew up in the evangelical South, I don't know what your church uh, background is, but I think the majority of the people in the room grew up um, uh, at least around the evangelical South. And I think as that, we will have to do some some work uh, to fight uh, the thing in us that wants to turn the ethics of Jesus from a description about the fullness of human life within the kingdom of God into uh, a list of rules that we can follow. We're gonna, we will have to fight that urge. That's what it's going to feel like. We're going to hear things and be like, if I do this, this, and this, things will get better. If I, we'll want to turn them um, into rules. Uh, it's really hard to look at something like this and see it for what it actually is, something so much bigger and so much wider and deeper and wilder and more beautiful and brilliant than simply an answer of how to gain uh, God's favor. 
And so there are absolutely prescriptive things in the Sermon on the Mount. There are times that Jesus declares wisdom and taking action. There are times he says, do this and don't do this. That is absolutely here. Uh, but to merely experience this as a list of do's and don'ts would be really to miss the, the brilliance and the beauty of what Jesus is actually talking about. So that's the first thing I expect. Uh, the second expectation I have is that I think as we work our way through the ethics of Jesus, um, they will start to cause some friction in our hearts. Um, when the Sermon of the Mount is experienced rightly, it, it feels uh, more like sandpaper kind of smoothing out our rough edges uh, than it does just like a really nice speech or a list of rules. Uh, and so if you're here and you call yourself a Jesus follower, these chapters in Matthew, they will most likely, even if you're not a Jesus follower, they might make you very uncomfortable. But um, as a Jesus follower, they will, they will make you uh, most likely very uh, uncomfortable. Um, they will make you feel picked on at times. And I really think they're meant to. I really think that they're supposed to. Um, and so that's how sandpaper feels on us, right? It's not super comfortable. Sandpaper is incredibly uncomfortable. Um, and so if you feel that way as we work through things, that is okay. It is okay to feel uncomfortable. It is okay to feel picked on. It's okay to feel confused. It's okay to ask questions. My hope is um, that if you feel that way, that it will lead you to do that. It will lead you to ask questions or to engage with someone. This is why small groups are so great. Our small groups are um, going through the Sermon on the Mount series together, and so it just kind of creates a place to ask questions. But if you're not in a small group, it doesn't mean you can't ask questions. Just, like, holler at me. I, 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 I don't know if I'll answer them, but I'd love to talk to you about it, um, or Chad, or Aaron, or, or, or Johnny, or anybody. So that was just the introduction. Are you ready? Um, today, we are talking about uh, Jesus and the ethics around anger. Um, and just full disclosure, I think this is why it's taking me so long to start the sermon, is because for me, writing this and doing this, it was a sandpaper kind of process. Actually, I don't know that it was sandpaper. I think it was more like a sandblaster. Like, you know the machine that sands down the first layer of floors that it takes like a grown man to operate? That's how I feel um, after the last week. And so um, so before we really jump in, um, let's, I just want to talk about anger as an emotion and just kind of get out of the way that, that anger is a really um, normal thing, right? It's a really normal thing. It is part of every single one of our lives, all of our lives. It is a basic human emotion present and accessible to every human being that has lived uh, since the beginning of time. I think um, often we are really quick to categorize anger as bad, that anger is this bad thing and we're not supposed to feel it and we're supposed to get rid of it. Um, but the truth is that in and of itself, anger is not a, a bad thing. It's an innate thing. It's a natural thing. It's, it's not a bad thing. Um, anger is, uh, it's originated in our original primal limbic system. It's, it's the part, it, it comes from the part of our brain that responds automatically. Like without thinking, without decision, it, it is an automatic response. It's directly to connected um, to the fight or flight or freeze uh, response system. There's a guy named James Averill who is a researcher and he's a professor of, a professor of psychology at the University of Massachusetts. And he, um, for like the last 40 years, has done years and years and years of really fascinating research around anger. And through his research, he concluded that anger actually can be a really good thing. Anger, um, uh, through his research, he has concluded that anger is one of the densest forms of communication that we have. 
He says that anger conveys more information and faster than almost any type of emotion that we have. Anger, it it forces us to listen to and to confront problems that we might otherwise avoid. And so, you know, this something happens to us biologically uh, when we get angry. It's a, it's a felt emotion, a really visceral emotion. Our heart rate rises and our blood pressure rises and our testosterone levels increase. And we have like this burst of energy, this burst of adrenaline. Um, but at the same time, Avril's research showed that, that when anger is channeled property, properly, uh, our levels of the stress hormone cortisol actually have the ability to drop, which seems to suggest that there's something about correctly channeled anger uh, that actually has the ability to calm people down and to allow them to confront rather than run from a problem. To maybe see a problem um, true and accurately rather than run from it or hide from it. This is how anger leads to um, some really good things like political and social and policy change. It, it, it leads to all kinds of good changes. It's how um, this is the way that we can use anger to fight injustice and uh, to protect and defend those in need uh, of it and protect and defend ourselves. It's not an entirely bad thing. Anger is a really good and useful thing for us. And at the same time, um, when anger isn't channeled correctly in us, it can be an extremely bad thing, an extremely destructive thing uh, to ourselves and to those around us. Uh, Sometimes, uh, maybe often for plenty of us in the room, uh, rather than leading to productivity or healthy confrontation, our anger has a way instead to lead us to just like a total shutdown um, or possibly outrage. And um, I read a psychologist this week uh, from George Washington University who also works for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And, and, um, and he has research that's showing that the outrage part of our anger um, has actually become addictive uh, to us in, um, to, since 2014. That it has become this addictive thing, um, particularly in Americans, that um, outrage offers our brain the same, physio- uh, same physiology of like a high, of an emotional high or a chemical high, but just like a really unhappy uh, high. And what happens is that our brains, um, as they do with a chemical high or an emotional high, they just keep trying to replicate the feeling over and over and over again. That's, that's what ad- one of the things that addiction is. And so... Um, So while anger in and of itself doesn't hold moral value outside of natural and normal, it, like our other emotions, uh, becomes good or bad based on what we do with it, based on how we use it. Um, And so when we're talking about Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and anger, um, it, it kind of on a first reading sounds like Jesus is saying, never be angry. And I don't, I don't think that's what he's doing at all. I don't think that Jesus is condemning all anger. That doesn't really hold up in the rest of Scripture. Um, one of the, the best ways to interpret the Bible is to use the Bible to interpret itself. And, and so uh, the truth is that, that we see God angry often in the Old Testament. And, and we see the anger of Jesus in the New Testament when he comes in the temple and he's like throwing over tables and uh, the defense and the protection of the exploited people in the temple and uh, Paul talks about a kind of righteous anger or a holy anger. And so, so I don't think it's that God is trying to get rid or Jesus is trying to say get rid uh, or all anger is bad. Um, so I think there's a good kind or there's a protective kind. Okay, here's an example. So um, a few years ago uh, on the Friday after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, I went to a movie with some friends at uh, the, the theater in Turkey Creek in West Knoxville. And... Um, After the movie, we decided to run into a couple stores uh, since we were there. 
and it was Black Friday, and there were sales, and um, I don't know if you've ever been Black Friday shopping, but my two, uh, the two best words I could use to describe it is that it is a hilarious nightmare um, of, like, people in matching shirts pushing each other. You know, it's, it's amazing. So if you get a chance, you should check it out as just like a social experiment. But um, so, so we're walking um, from our car into the store with like a whole crowd of people. And my two friends are in front of me. And I'm like walking behind them, digging in my purse or something, because I'm always digging in my purse or something, because I've lost everything. And that's what I'm doing. And I look up. I hear my friend uh, Claire start to yell. And I look up. And, um, and I see that she is, her face, she is livid and she's yelling and she says that guy almost hit me with his car and as I'm listening to this happen um, to her screaming that she almost got hit by a car I feel this strange sensation in my leg and then all of a sudden I have uh, two hands on the hood of a man's car (laughs) and it takes me a few seconds to realize I have been hit by a car he has hit me with his vehicle I was walking, he ran into me with his car because he could not wait. And I'm staring at this guy with my, it's a real surreal sensation. Don't know if you've ever experienced it with my hand, hands on his hood, staring into his eyes. And, um, and it, the next few minutes are, or the next few seconds are like slow motion to me, even still. I just remember the realization that I was okay. Um, and then there was just like this immediate feeling of anger. Like just my whole body was full of anger and then I thought a thousand thoughts at once. That, that whole like, um, the, the, it's the most dense thing that we can experience. I, it was like, in my mind, I'm like, Ten- in Tennessee, pedestrians have the right of way and it's Black Friday and of course there's a billion people out here and you should learn how to wait and I am a person and you hit me with your car. Like I'm just, I'm feeling all of the things and, and it's not okay for people to get hit by cars. This is wrong. This is an injustice, you know. And so um, as all of this is happening and my hands are on the hood of this guy's car, I, I get, I'm eye to eye with him and it's at that point that I realize that he is mad at me. He is mad at me. And so what happens from that moment is I move from anger into a full-on outrage. Like, oh, no, sir. You hit me with your car. And so at this point, I stand up and I look in the window and I just start yelling, you hit me with your car. You hit me. And then I'm doing this motion with my hands and it was this. I don't know what that is. Like, was I going to run? Was I, like, punching him? I don't know. And so I'm just standing there, and I'm just like, you hit me with your car. And then I called him a name that, um, because Megan and Kayla are in the front row, I'm not going to repeat. Just kidding. I'm really not going to repeat it, though. But I will tell you this. It was worse than idiot. And Jesus says idiot's bad, so I don't know. He does not really clear on what you're, what's wrong if you say a bad word at someone. Um, but that's what I did. And so it's like this whole progression. I think that this is an example of a really true way that anger progresses in us, right? There's different stages to it. There's different pieces of it. There's on-ramps and off-ramps all throughout it. Uh, Some psychologists teach that, that anger is actually a secondary emotion, that it is what comes after fear or after sadness or after hurt, Um, And I think that's right. Anger is an emotion that exists uh, that we see on the surface. But the thing is, under anger is, is, is almost always something else. 
There's fear there or there's hurt there or there's sadness there. And then if you look below those things, uh, Patrick Doyle, who's a counselor um, who I really appreciate in the Pacific Northwest, and he says um, that he believes the root of all anger is injustice. That the root of our anger is injustice, it, it, that it begins with injustice that leads to hurt or fear or sadness or fill in the blank, and that it comes out as anger. And so if that's true, then that means that anger is built out of this God-given instinct inside of us. Like as Christians, we believe uh, that every human being is made in the image of God, is an image bearer of God. And so what that means is that we're born with this innate sense of justice within us. That, that when that justice is threatened or mocked or messed with uh, or hit by a car, then our response is to be angry. It's to say, that's not it. That's not how things are supposed to be. This is when anger is good. Our God-given response to justice, that's, that's a good thing. But what can make this tricky is that the injustice that leads to anger uh, can sometimes be real And the injustice that leads to anger can sometimes be perceived, right? Sometimes it's real and sometimes it's perceived. In my story, I believe that an injustice occurred. I got hit by a car. That is an injustice. But you may hear the story and hear that as a perceived injustice because, to be fair, I wasn't looking and I was digging in my purse. And I walked in front of the man's car, you know. Um, So, um, and, but, but for me, I perceived an injustice. I got hit by a car, and therefore I got hurt, and I got afraid, and then I immediately got angry. And my anger caused my brain and my body to respond physiologically in a way that made me want to stand up for myself and defend myself and punch the air repeatedly. That's a more embarrassing physiological response. <laughs> I wish it had been cooler. Like, I, I can't do a cool mo- I don't know what it would be. Um, But in this moment, instead of channeling my anger into a solution, what happened for me is that I uh, let it give way to outrage. I let it give way to explosion. I fell into the very thing that I think Jesus is talking about when he's talking about um, fighting our anger. I called names, and I held offense, and I'm honestly in this moment angry all over again. As I was writing this out in my notes, I was like, I'm still ticked at this guy. I am so mad at him. Like, I am so mad at him. I'm honestly, in this moment, angry all over again. Like, I still have a need to belittle him. I want to tell you what a terrible driver he is. And I want to tell you that he has horrible road rage. And I want to feel justified. Like, I need him to be a bad driver. I need him to be, he was, like, out to get me and singled me out in this crowd of people. Like, that's what, that's what I feel on the inside. And faster and deeper than I'm aware of, uh, my anger has this way of quickly giving way to resentment and quickly giving way to contempt and quickly giving way to hatred. It's a very classic path of anger, injustice, hurt or fear or sadness or, or some other emotion, anger, resentment, contempt, hatred, holding offense far longer than we were ever meant to, rather than me channeling it into something productive, uh, and most of us, rather than channeling our, our anger into something productive, we tend to soothe the adrenaline rush with the balm of resentment, with the balm of contempt, the balm of offense, because it feels good. It feels kind of right, doesn't it? It feels kind of right to hold offense, to, to justify our outrage, to stand above someone or something, 
Frederick Buechner says it like this. He says, one of the seven, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over the grievances long past. To roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come. To savor to the last toothsome morsel the pain that you are given and the pain that you are giving back. In many ways, anger is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback, however, is that what you are wolfing down is actually yourself. The skeleton at that feast is you. I think this is the reason why Jesus takes the commandment not to murder and he goes so much deeper and so much further with it. Because he knows that anger doesn't always uh, stay put to fight its own battles. He knows that oh so very often anger gives way into truly destructive things like resentment and contempt and bitterness. Jesus seems to know or, or seems to be saying that uh, when our anger lingers, when it owns us, when we lose control of it, the one who is actually most damaged is us. I don't think Jesus is saying that there's nothing to be angry at. There are horrible things in this world to be angry at. I think what Jesus is saying is that when we hold on to it for dear life, we aren't fighting against the horrible things. We're destroying ourselves. We're destroying ourselves. The skeleton that we're eating at the feast is ourselves. He knows how quickly our anger has the ability to destroy us and to destroy our relationships. Because that's what happens, right? We are, we are people in the practice of staying angry. So often, uh, in the face of the real and perceived injustices of our lives, we stay angry. We hold on to it. Staying angry is how we punish each other, right? It's, how, it's also, and even more soothing and um, probably dangerous and terrifying, anger is how we protect ourselves from each other. It's how we protect ourselves from other people. If I stay mad at you, if I refuse to forgive you, then I can use my anger to build a barrier between us to keep you from getting close enough to hurt me again. Right? And it works almost every single time. That's why we do it, because it's effective. And it works. C.S. Lewis, in one of his sonnets, he calls anger the anesthetic of the mind. That's how it works. Anger and resentment and contempt, we hold on to them because they anesthetize us, because they numb us. Because for a second, we don't have to face what's in front of us. But the cost of that resentful protection to us is great. It does terrible things to our bodies and maybe even worse things to our souls. When we read through the Sermon on the Mount, there are plenty of references um, to the kingdom of heaven, uh, or, or to the kingdom of God. Um, and, and actually there are tons of references to uh, hell or to the kingdom of darkness. And I think um, most often when we read things like this, uh, we read them with the thought of an afterlife of like heaven to come or hell to come. But I think um, when we take in those ideas just as some sort of future hope or future punishment, I think we miss something that Jesus is saying. Um, because there is a, an active and present piece of what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of hell. Um, at the vineyard, we believe uh, that the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of heaven, that it is current and that it's active, that it's already here and that it's also uh, yet to come. 
That's absolutely how Jesus teaches it. He, he talks about how the kingdom of God is at hand and that the kingdom of God is coming in full. Uh, we call it the already and the not yet, that we believe God's kingdom is here and that God's kingdom is coming. Uh, but Jesus also talks about hell in, in, in a really similar way. In verse 22, he says uh, that cursing someone anger in anger puts you in danger of hell. But the word that he uses there is Gehenna, uh, Gehenna, which was an actual place. Like if you Google Gehenna, um, I did it this week. There's actually a picture that sort of looks like a resort. And the, and the tagline under it was like, this place looks good, but it's really not. Um, what, Gehenna, what Gehenna is, is it's an actual place. It was like the dump, basically, where, fire, where trash was burning constantly. It would have been the worst place in town, the, the place you least wanted to be. And so I don't think it's crazy at all to think that uh, part of what Jesus is teaching about anger here is a warning that, that when we uh, practice uh, irrational or destructive or um, long-held anger, uh, that, that it, is this, it, is, it is our way of tasting hell on earth. That's our way of living out the kingdom of darkness on the earth. And if you've ever, uh, the hell of self-destruction, that's what I wanted to call it, that we're living out the hell of self-destruction. If you've ever held on uh, to your resentments, like held dear, cuddled your resentments, then you know that this is true. If you have ever held on to your anger uh, for a long time, then you know that you, you know the taste of hell on earth. That what once protected you, what once made you feel good, the contempt of having someone in the world that you believe is all wrong or having someone to blame for why things are not turning out for you the way that you wish they would or, um, or, or a reason that everything um, is the way it is in the world. If you have ever held tightly to your anger, then you know that eventually what soothed you starts to undo you. That what felt like protection starts to instead feel like alone. What once felt like righteous indignation uh, becomes grandstanding to no one that you even care about anymore. What once, uh, what at one time gave you purpose or power has left you sad and unfulfilled and sometimes even unrecognizable. What once felt like adrenaline and clarity now feels like panic and restlessness and anxiety. And if you've experienced it, kind of like a heart attack. What you once had control of has now created a vicious cycle of sadness and unrest that you can't seem to find your way out of no matter how hard you try. Hell on earth. I think the warning of Jesus here is this. I think what he's saying is pay attention to your anger and deal with it. Pay attention to your anger and deal with it because it has the ability to steal your joy and to destroy your life. I came to give you life and to give it to the full and this is ruining it. This is destroying it. Our job is not to push anger down or to pretend that it doesn't exist or to pretend that we don't feel it. The good life means that we learn how to listen to it and we learn how to confront it. That's maturity. That's emotional health. Eugene Peterson says something I think is particularly helpful in this, and it's a long quote, so hang with me. Uh, he says this, he says, anger is a most useful, sorry, anger is most useful as a diagnostic tool. When anger erupts in us, it is a signal that something isn't working, a signal of, un, of injustice. So when anger uh, erupts in us, it's a symbol that something isn't working right. There is evil or incompetence or stupidity lurking about. Anger is our sixth sense for sniffing out wrong in the neighborhood. 
Anger is infused by a moral and spiritual intensity that carries conviction. When we are angry, we know that we are onto something that matters and that we are onto something that really counts. But what anger fails to do is that it fails to tell us whether the wrong is outside us or inside us. We usually begin by assuming that the wrong is outside of us. Our spouse or our child or, or our God has done something wrong and we are angry. More often the wrong is inside us. If we track the anger carefully, we will often find that it leads to a wrong inside us. Wrong information, inadequate understanding, or often an underdeveloped heart. I love and hate what he says. <laughs> Mostly hate. <laughs> Feels like sandpaper. We are wise to learn how to listen to our anger. It shows us that we are on to something that matters, that really counts. And when we learn to listen to our anger, we, we're also wise to learn to ask a deeper question of it. A deeper question of where is the injustice? Where is the injustice? Our anger doesn't tell us if the wrong is inside us or outside of us. So we have to learn to go after that information in our lives. Sometimes it's really obvious. Sometimes it is very clear that the, that the injustice happened outside of us. But part of learning to deal with our anger is, is to take the time to look at it to figure out if that's true. But, but the truth is dealing with anger is terrifying. It's really, really scary uh, what Jesus seems to tell us when he says to leave our sacrifice and chase after reconciliation, uh, to turn the other cheek and to give up our coats and to carry an extra mile and to love and pray for our enemies, what he seems to be saying is that the antidote to the kind of anger that will destroy us is forgiveness. And that's scary. It's beautiful. And it's terrifying because there is freedom and forgiveness, but there is also loss and forgiveness. There's, there's small death and large death in forgiveness because where resentment and anger feel like protection, uh, forgiveness feels like vulnerability of like your skin wide open. There's a lady named Mary Gordon who, who uh, wrote the, the, the New York Times Book Review did, uh, had all of these different authors write um, on the seven deadly sins and, and Mary Gordon is the one who wrote on anger. And she says it like this. She says, the only way to stop irrational anger is by an act of equally irrational forgiveness. The only way to stop irrational anger is by an act of equally irrational forgiveness. This is difficult to achieve because anger is exciting and enlivening and forgiveness is quiet. She says uh, that forgiveness is more like a small farm that's labor intensive that produces a really tiny harvest. Then she says this, she says, anger has the glamour of illicit sex while forgiveness feels more like the endless flexibility that's required to be married for a long time. Anger feeds a sense of power. Forgiveness reminds us of our humbleness, that unpopular commodity so misunderstood. And then she says the worst thing, prepare yourself. She says, to forgive is to give up the exhilaration of one's own rightness. That destroys me. The only way to stop irrational anger is to meet it with an act of, of equally irrational forgiveness. And to forgive means to give up the exhilaration of my rightness. And I love my rightness. I love it. This is why Jesus is so breathtaking to me. This is why I think he's so good. 
because he doesn't just stand on a mountain and tell everyone that the work of the kingdom uh, doesn't have time or room for our anger to overtake us. He tells us about the freedom that is possible for our anger, and then he goes and gets it for us. He goes and gets it for us. Not long after this sermon is preached, a group of men, they come to Jesus and they arrest him and then they put him in this bogus trial where some of the people who were sitting and listening to these words show up in a different crowd and they scream at the stage to have him crucified. And then the ruling bodies, they humiliate him and they sentence him to death. Talk about injustice. That is unjust. And yet, Jesus refuses the way of anger. Instead of participating in the anger, he bears it. He doesn't participate in it. He bears it. Jesus took on all of the unjust anger against him. The anger from the Romans, the anger of the government, the anger against his own people, the anger of darkness for all of time. He took it on his own self. That is beautiful and irrational. N.T. Wright says that in these moments on the cross, that that freedom and forgiveness and reconciliation move from being an ideal or something that we strive for to become something that is actually possible, something that that we actually have the ability to embody. Through the cross, Jesus makes a way for us to find the reconciliation of the good, the good life, to find uh, the freedom of letting go, of feeling anger, and then learning how to process it in order to let it go. This great act of irrational forgiveness in the face of irrational injustice means that there is hope for our anger. He doesn't just talk about it. He goes and gets it. The promise of the kingdom of God is a transformed heart. The promise of the kingdom of God is not a list of things that uh, you should do to be good. The promise of the kingdom of God is a transformed heart, a heart that has been set free. Ezekiel says it like this, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart, and I will give you a tender, responsive heart of flesh. The band can come on up. Um, I want to do a couple of things to close up. Um, we're going to be quiet for a minute. The, the way we do this, this is another weekly rhythm of ours. We call it Selah, and it's just a breath or a pause. There are going to be verses on the screen. If it's helpful, follow along. If not, don't. Um, but Selah, when it's in the Psalms, um, you find it there will be like a, a stanza and then the word Selah. And basically what it means, there's no like accurate definition, but, but the idea behind it is stop, don't move on too quickly from here. And so I do, I, ju- I just want to pause in this. And I want to ask God for the courage to not move on too quickly uh, from here. Uh, but there are a few things I do want to say. Um, one is uh, getting free from anger, I don't think it just means the irrational anger. I think that Jesus has something great and deep and wide and beautiful to offer us uh, in our anger that's rational our anger that is against true injustice and true evil and true darkness. I think that there is hope and peace to be had in that. So, so to, 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 to do war on your anger, even when it is just, does not mean that you're, you're, you're rationalizing what has happened or rationalizing what has happened to you. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're discounting what happened. It just means that, that you're exposing the darkness to the light. 
we talked about that last week, like light matters and it pierces the darkest of things. And that's what we're doing when we let go of the anger that is justified is we allow light to pierce the darkness. Mm-hmm. Secondly, um, if you, um, actually I have three things. Secondly, if you have found yourself more angry than you have ever been in your entire life, maybe since like 2015-ish, um, and you are also glued to your TV and whatever news source your little body can take in, um, I would like to invite you in the name of Jesus to take a week off, to take a week off from TV, to take a week off from news, to autobiographical, take a week off of Twitter. That's where I get my news. It's terrifying. Don't listen to me. To take a week off. Um, my, my counselor keeps talking about the epidemic of anger right now because of the political unrest in our country, and we are feeding it. You think that you are being informed. You Hear me. You are feeding it. You are feeding it. Stop it. Take a break. It'll be, I, I assure you it'll be there next week. It never goes away, right? Okay, last thing. I'm so sorry I called you all up. Now I'm still going. Um, last thing. If, okay. Um, if, hold on, I want to say this right. Uh, okay, I absolutely think this, the first step in learning to listen to and deal with our anger is prayer. Um, and so we're going to do that at the end. I really, I, I want a whole bunch of us to come get prayer for this. Um, but uh, I also think that for some of us, it might be time to bring someone else in on our anger as in counseling. Um, this may be for someone in the room. Um, I have a lot of question, conversations with people where they're like, hey, should I go to counseling? Um, and spoiler alert, my answer is always yes. If you are a human, yes, you should go. It's hard to be a person. Go, go talk to somebody. Um, but uh, there, here's a good clue that you might be need, in need of some help on this. If there is a relationship or honestly probably relationships in your life where you cannot seem to break the cycle of anger and resentment and contempt, that is a good sign that it is time to bring an outside voice in. Uh, Second thing, if you're at a point in your life where you feel like you have lost control of your anger, where your anger speaks for you or acts for you or leads the way, um, it might be good to ask uh, for outside help on that. Does that make sense? Um, Here's the truth. We all struggle with this. Uh, I didn't even read the anger statistics because I talked too long. We all need help. It's not just the Bible that says our anger is killing us. All of science is saying the same thing. So um, if you Google, why is America so angry? Don't do that if you're taking the week off. But if you Google it, it's like terrifying, okay? So it is hurting all of us, but there is help and there is freedom to be had. And um, if you need the name of a counselor, we've, we've got a list. So call us. Here's the deal. Pride will keep us isolated and it will keep us sick. Wisdom will go seek help. Wisdom knows when to shine a light in the darkness. So I'm going to pray for courage, I'm going to pray for wisdom, and we'll be quiet for a little while. So God, we ask you to send your spirit now to be with us and for us. I pray that um, in the quiet, you will meet us. And will you fill us with the courage to be honest? Will you fill us with the wisdom Um, to see the darkness in our own lives and the darkness in our own hearts, to see uh, where we are holding offense that we don't want to let go of, where we we are bound to resentment or bound to contempt instead of bound to freedom and bound to hope and bound to truth. And so God, will you just, like getting rid of this is impossible on our own. It's hard enough with you. It is impossible on our own. So God, will you come? Will you be with us? Will you be for us? 
will you shine the light into the darkest crevices of our hearts? And will you give us the courage? Will you give us the wisdom and the courage to let somebody else into it? The wisdom and the courage to look in the mirror and the wisdom and the courage to turn and say, I think I have a problem. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, We're gonna come to the table now. Um, Not because we're eating our feelings, but kinda. Um, Here's why we're coming to the table. Because we're gonna walk forward and we're gonna choose life. Maybe just for this second. We're going to walk forward and we're going to choose freedom, maybe for this second. Um, There's a priest I love named Barbara Brown Taylor, and she says that Christianity is the only religion where the sinner has all the advantages. Here's why. Because we are being forgiven ever and constantly. We are being forgiven ever and constantly. And so we come up to this table and we have access to freedom and we have access to life because uh, we come forward to celebrate the God who is not angry at you. He is not angry at you. The God who did not choose the way of anger, but instead chose an irrational forgiveness. There are plenty of things that God is angry at. You are not one of them. He did not choose that. He could have. That was an option. He didn't pick it. He picked an irrational forgiveness. And so we come forward in the celebration that we have been forgiven, that we are being forgiven, that we will be forgiven in a way that makes no sense. It's so absurd that it has to be the best news in all of the world, right? So you don't have to be a member of the vineyard to come take communion. Um, There'll be people up here to serve you. The way we do it is we just make a little basket with our hands and, and we serve it to you. The reason we do that is because we believe that this meal, that this gift is not something we have to take, that it's something that's freely offered from the God who is not angry, from the God who instead uh, replaces our heart of darkness with like the lavish love, the light of Jesus. And so you don't have to take it. You just get to accept it. <laughs> Um, it's all gluten-free, so if that's a trouble, surprise. So on the night he was betrayed, Jesus, he took the bread and he broke it and he blessed it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this out of your great affection for me. In the same way, he took the cup and he blessed it and he said, this is the cup of a new covenant between God and man. My blood for you, an irrational exchange. Drink this out of your great affection for me for whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim my life, death, and we believe resurrection forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, that the end of the story isn't darkness, that the end of the story isn't anger, that the end of the story isn't despair, that the end of the story isn't death. We thank you that the end of the story is life, it is hope, it is freedom. We thank you that the cross is bigger than we can understand and bigger than we can imagine. And so I pray in these few minutes that even if just for a second, we would believe that you are not angry with us, that you love us, that your stance toward us is single and it is relentless, that it does not change. You love us. And so we come forward and we say thank you. In your name we pray, amen.